0: This over the last couple of weeks, you'll know what these things are here. Hopefully, some of them still have lights in. Is that just in that little bit after what I just read to you, which is from John, which is from Revelation chapter one? Um, what then Jesus said is that Jesus gave John a message to seven churches, which he referred to as seven lampstands. The imagery there is powerful because as a believer and as a church, we don't just have the light of God, we're meant to be the light of God, we're meant to shine in the darkness, isn't that right? And uh, Jesus said, I walk amongst the lampstands because it's his church, he's the Lord of the church, not me, not you, not, none of us, but him. And to these churches, he gave a specific message to each one. And over the last two weeks, we've looked at four churches, therefore four messages. So the recap is that to Ephesus, the message that we took for us was be passionate. Okay, was a great church, it was a mother church, it was a resource church, but you've lost your first love. Be passionate. Then to the church at Smyrna, the message that we received from that was be faithful. You know, be faithful, endure patiently. And then last week, if you'll remember, and we did some grown-up teaching last week, didn't we? We looked at the church at Pergamum, and the message there to Pergamum was be watchful. You know, watch what you tolerate. How tolerant is too tolerant Watch teaching, watch behaviour, watch lifestyle, be watchful. And then finally, to the church at Thyatira, that powerful message, be holy. And we looked at sexual purity in a godless, crazy, kind of mixed up moral world. Well, those are the four churches we've looked at. But right now, we're going to head to Revelation chapter 3. And we're going to look at the church in a place called Sardis. So sit back and watch the screens. And this is Sardis. So this is Sardis. This was the capital of the ancient kingdom of Lydia, very powerful at the time of the Greek empire. Its early prosperity was due to its abundance of gold. And at one stage, the city was almost like an impregnable fortress, a citadel. But it never regained its greatness under Roman rule. And today is only a small village called Sart. This was a geographically secure city, but a city resting on its past greatness. The church at Sardis is only mentioned once in the whole Bible and that's in this passage from Revelation. Perhaps this is a church that's asleep that needs to wake up. Sardis, you've got mail. So that was a little weird, me saying this is Sardis and then me saying this is Sardis. That kind of freaked me out. So have you got Revelation chapter 3? Let us ask you a question before we dive into this and this is a great message here, powerful and challenging, I believe. How many of you would answer this question? How many of you have a reputation? (laughs) You do, you know. You might not know what it is and you're not quite sure is it a good one or a bad one, but everyone has a reputation and churches have a reputation as well. And um, John Maxwell, who's who's a leadership writer and author, he says this reputation is what others think you are, but character is what you really are. In other words, reputation is the idea that other people have about you, but character is what you really are. And I want you to imagine being in the church at Sardis, okay, and you get the message, okay, you know, via Twitter or Facebook or text messages, as we've started to do now from the church to some of you, um, as you get the message that actually the apostle, there's a message from Jesus via the Apostle John that's going to be read out on Sunday morning or Saturday morning or whenever they met, and you'd be so excited, you'd all gather together, you'd all be in your best, and some of you would even sit at the front because you wanted to hear this amazing message, okay? You'd even move seats for this amazing message. And I want you to imagine being gathered and being sat together and waiting for the message that Jesus has to you as a specific group of people, a specific community of believers. Imagine how you would have felt when you heard the message as it was read out. Revelation chapter 3. To the angel of the church inside its right. these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. No problem, that's just the introduction. Here's the message. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Ow, somebody said over there. Imagine how you'd feel, all excited, all expectant, message from Jesus to you, You have a reputation of being alive, liking it so far, but you are dead. I want to suggest, I'm not sure that's going to sell many CDs in church at Sardis. I'm not sure that's a really popular message for the church to hear. Who likes crime programs? Anyone like crime programs? CSI, any CSI fans in the house? How about some of the British classics like Silent Witness? The classic, the most believable one has got to be *Midsummer Murders, hasn't it? I mean, it's got to be. They're true. It is true. There are so many English villages like that with dead bodies all over the place. It's so true, isn't it? And and when you watch one of these crime programs, they nearly always start with a dead body. And they nearly always then, someone does an autopsy on the dead body, and the cause of death is not what we first thought. They're nearly always the same. And when you look at the dead body... And you say, oh, oh, it's died this way. But then some bright spark comes along, does an autopsy, and finds something under the fingernails or something. So you realise that what caused the death was not what we first thought it was. What we're going to do this morning is that we're going to do a little autopsy on the church. And we do a little autopsy on a believer. Because what Jesus is saying is that it's possible for a believer and or for a church to be dead. And so when we look at the signs of death, we're going to look at what causes a believer or a body, a church, to actually die. And to understand it in Sardis, we need to understand a little bit about the context historically for the city. Sardis was once a great city. It was the capital of the kingdom called Lydia. And in 5 BC, under the king, under the king whose name was Croesus, they were an incredible city. In fact, the king Croesus at that point in history was the richest man on the planet Because Sardis sat on gold reserves. And Sardis was the place where they first minted coins. And King Croesus was the king of Sardis. You may know him by another name. His other name was Midas. Anyone heard of it? The Golden Touch. And so here's this king who is incredibly wealthy over this great kingdom. And Sardis as a city, there was a lower part to the city and an upper part. And the upper part was where the fortifications were. And it was so impregnable that nobody could take hold of the city. And so if you lived in Sardis, you said, you know what? What our reputation is, we're rich, we're secure, we're impregnable, we've got it all made. But there were two stories from history which show why Sardis died as a city and also have a spiritual connection as well. There's one story that King Cyrus of Persia, some of you will have heard of King Cyrus, he's in the Bible. He's also in the film 300. Okay? And in, in, that, in that story of Cyrus in the Bible, you see what a powerful leader he was. And he came with his armies and they besieged the city of Sardis, but they couldn't um, break through the walls. And then one night, uh, a, a soldier in Sardis, his helmet fell off outside the city and rolled down the hill. And because he was so confident and so complacent and so sure of himself, he went out of the city and there was a secret trail that only they knew, that led from the city gates down the hill. And he went down the secret trail to retrieve his helmet, but he was seen by the enemy soldiers, who then on the next night, when they were all asleep, used the trail to impregnate the city and to to bring about their destruction. Uh, Years later, there's another story about, again, a, a siege around Sardis, and they can't get in, and then they notice that there are a group of vultures. I don't quite know what a group is, probably a flock, I'm not sure. But there's some vultures, and they're on a section of the wall. And the soldiers think, if the vultures are on the wall, that means there's no people the other side. That means that's open. And in the dead of night, they took the city by that weakness in the wall. And when you look at that in a historical background, what's happening is that actually the people of Sardis were so complacent, so apathetic or so sure of themselves that they didn't realise that they were asleep. And while they were asleep, the enemy took their city. And so that as a background, Jesus is saying to the church, listen guys, you can also be like that. Spiritual death comes as a result of apathy, complacency, familiarity, summed up in the concept that you are asleep. You're asleep. You're asleep spiritually. And so in the night, you are vulnerable. Because you are asleep. And so the message for us as a church, guys, this morning, as an individual, that we've got mail, if you like, Merlin, if you can flip that, is that we need to be awake. We need to be awake as an individual believer. And we need to be awake as a church. Because if we're not awake, in our sleep, we can die. Spiritually, an individual can die. And also... A community, a church can die. There's a story I read this week as I was preparing for this about an eccentric pastor in America. A young guy who went to his first church and he was really frustrated with the church and with their spiritual appetite and spiritual life. And so he declared on one Sunday in his impatience, I want to declare to you that this church is dead and next week I'm I'm going to do the funeral. And so the next Sunday, the church was packed with people that were excited, kind of interested in this whole thing. And there was a coffin in the front of the church. And he said, I am conducting the funeral of this church. And if you're not sure that that, that you believe that this church is dead, I want you to come out and I want you to look in the coffin. And of course, people came out and looked in the coffin. And in the bottom of the coffin, what he put? A mirror. And as people looked in, they saw themselves. And his point was that the spiritual death of this church is related to the spiritual life or death of its members. It's quite a challenging word, isn't it? Jesus says your reputation is that you're alive, but actually you're dead because you're asleep. And we're going to do a little autopsy on ourselves, a little check of our vital signs this morning to see whether we really are awake or whether we're in danger of being asleep spiritually, which can lead to spiritual death. So let's pick up the message in verse 2. Jesus says, firstly, I know you deed, have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Here's the first thing he says Wake up! <laughs> wake up! How many of you love the alarm clock? How many of you love it? Yesterday, we, we've had quite a traumatic week, and many of you have been through this, and you're going through it, and you've been through it, and some of you, it's to come. As that, Obviously, many of you know that our youngest son, Simeon, is away from us in residential care because of his special needs and disability, and then yesterday, we took our other son and put him in university and drove away and left him there, and all of that kind of thing. Many of you know what that's like, and one of our concerns was, will he ever wake up and go to any lectures? Um, you know, that it's fairly, fairly concerned, I'm sure some of you parents of boys especially have, and his grandparents um, bought him an alarm clock, <laughs> which they gave to him on Friday night. The funny thing about the alarm clock, you read the box, it says, if you set this alarm clock, it will, it will not lose a second in 65 million years. Who on earth is going to check that out? Do you know what I mean? That's ridiculous. But the alarm clock, we set the alarm clock up in the room, and what happens is that when the alarm clock goes off, the light, the, 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 the time that it is, it goes by infrared, and it's big light on the top of the ceiling. So that's meant to, meant to wake him up, because the alarm goes off, and the time goes up on the ceiling. The thing is, there's a really big snooze button, which he found straight away. He says, it's fine, and just get hitting the snooze button. And I wonder how many of us hit the snooze button spiritually, don't we? There's an alarm bell, bang, snooze button gone. Alarm, snooze button gone. And Jesus is saying to this church, you are asleep, you need to wake up. You need to wake up. Now, that's true as an individual. Paul says, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. In other words, if you don't want to die spiritually, you need to be awake. You see, when you're asleep, you do things that you'd never dream of doing when you're awake. Have you noticed that? And when you're asleep, you never know you've been asleep until you wake up. And so what happens to us spiritually is that we end up living in a state of sleep. So my question to you is, are you flirting with something that is dangerous for you spiritually? Because that's the kind of thing we do when we're asleep. And what about as a whole church? Is it possible for a whole church to be asleep? You know, the average time in America and Britain when a church begins to decline is around about 30 years. Isn't that interesting? The average time when a church begins to decline is around about the 30 year mark, which of course we are at, just gone. And and what happens is that the seeds of decline in a church that ultimately lead to death, they come around this whole area of sleep. They, they, They come around, before sleep, they come around this whole sense of apathy. The word apathy is a compound of two words. It literally means without feeling words, when we start to get apathetic about our spiritual life and about our community and about our God and about what's going on, when we start to get apathetic, that is the start of a decline that leads to death. And, And let me give you some modern phrases that sums this up. Am I bothered? Whatever. You see, when we get into a spiritual state as a church, when it's am I bothered? Whatever, we are in big trouble. We're in big trouble. And what happens is that the church, often a church, gets lulled into this state of sleepfulness by focusing on what it was in the past rather than by what it's meant to be in the present. And so so we can tell stories about how great we were, but that's the sleep and that's the seeds of our own destruction. And I want to say to you this morning guys and for many of you you're, you're visitors and you're here with us and that's great we love that brilliant have a great time now, lots of you you consider this to be the church that you're connected to the part of the body of Christ we're a part of the whole body in this place and across this region across this nation and world but you connect to, to, to us as a community of people I want to say something to us when we're through changing we're through when we're through changing we're through we have to Stay changing all of the time. Because if not, we can get lulled into a state of being asleep, which is spiritual death. And Jesus says, wake up. And then he goes on to say, strengthen strengthen what remains and is about to die. What does that mean? I think it means you've got to strengthen those things that will never change. Because as much as we've got to change, there's other things that will never change. And that's our values and our purpose. So our values and our purpose must never change. They must be strengthened. Everything else must change. Our methods, the time we meet, the way we meet, the songs we sing, the way we sing, all that stuff, that all has to change and keep changing. But our values and our purpose and why we exist, that must be strengthened because that's what really remains. You know, when, when, when the Apostle John wrote this, he, he probably wrote it with some kind of feather on some papyrus. And if he was to preach to a church, he would just have a very loud voice. When I prepare this message, I did it on a laptop. And I'm preaching with a Madonna mic around my head. But it's the same message, isn't it? You see, the the, the, the communication style has changed, but the message is the same. And that has to be what happens. And, And then interestingly enough, he goes on to say, And remember therefore what you've received and heard, obey it. Remember what you've received and heard. I want you to think about that word received. What did they receive? Well, the disciples received the Holy Spirit, didn't they? Jesus, the Bible says in John chapter 20 that Jesus breathed on them and they received the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, they were waiting and they were you know, in that upper room and they received the Holy Spirit. They rec- Remember what you've received and what you've heard and obey it. Live in it. Live in it. And for me, I want to say, you have a reputation of being alive, but are you? You you see, the reputation of being alive spiritually is not the same as being alive spiritually. Reputation is what others think you are, but character is what you really are. And I wonder for us as a church, we do some great stuff. I think we are a great church. And I think we have a good reputation. I think we do. But you know, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 verse 5, It's possible for a group of people to have a form of godliness but deny its power within. It's possible for us to do great stuff but to not be living a great spiritual life. Because the Holy Spirit being present in our lives as individuals and as a community is vital for us to be alive, isn't it? I wonder if it's possible to suffer from something I'm going to call functional atheism. What do I mean by that? We see you believe in God and you believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe, but we live like it doesn't exist. You know, yesterday was a a difficult day for us. know many of you will identify with that and you've been there and you've been the other side of it. And just taking Josh into that environment and just leaving him and coming away and thinking, how's he going to be? And everyone looked older than him and bigger than him and all this kind of stuff. And and so he went to be enrolled first. And so while he was enrolling and stuff and sorting his paperwork out, we went and had a cup of coffee. And uh, we were feeling a little bit kind of tender at that point. And we went and had a cup of coffee and we sat. There was nowhere to sit um, on our own, you see, which I think we wanted to be, if I'm honest. And there was an um, African lady sat down in front on, on, on her own on a table. And I said, could we sit here with you? And she said, yeah. And so we sat down and I started to chat to this African lady. It was a lovely lady from London. I started to chat and she's got an 18-year-old daughter and she was going through the whole same process as we were and her husband was just getting coffee and doing exactly the same as us. And I said, how are you coping with it? How are you finding it? And she said, I was doing great until church last Sunday morning. And then we had this whole conversation about God and about church and she said, I was doing fine and then my daughter and the others were brought out and they were prayed for just exactly like we did a couple of weeks ago. She says, and then i started to cry and blah, 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 blah. She says, and I'm just really praying. that." And so we have this great conversation about God straight away, the first conversation. And I thought to myself, do you know what? I can live like a functional atheist. Where I say I believe that God has got my son in his hands, yet when it comes to it, I can live like he hasn't. And there was that lady just reminding me, and hopefully me encouraging her as well, and us encouraging each other, that actually God is in control. And God is God. And, and God's presence can be with him wherever he is. And it's possible, you know, for you and I to live, to say we believe. But to live like we don't. And it's possible for a church to sing songs about how great God is, but not to live like that's true. And that comes down to the freshness of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. And as a church and as an individual, you see, the question I have for you is not have you experienced the Holy Spirit, the question is are you experiencing the Holy Spirit? Not have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? That's immaterial at one sense. Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit dynamic and active in life, in your life, now, today, not yesterday, or 10 or 20 years ago? (laughs) Paul said in Galatians 3, are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? You began in the Spirit, but now you're behaving like a functional atheist, and if you do that, you're going to die. So many churches and so many believers that begin in the Spirit end up in the flesh and they're dead because they lived like atheists although they said that they were believers and then he goes on to say so obey so live it out and repent it's his favorite word isn't it in these first couple of chapters repent you know we don't like you know what I've noticed and and it hasn't hit me until this week the longer you've been a believer the harder it is to repent because when you're a new Christian you repent all the time don't you you really Well, I did anyway. When I was a new Christian at 15 and a half, 16, I repented every week, okay? So every Sunday there was an opportunity to respond. I would do it. I was repenting all the time. Some of that was immaturity, but some of it was a real hunger and a spiritual aliveness because I wanted to be right. I wanted to be with God. I wanted to serve God. But the older that you get, the longer you've been going, sometimes the harder it is for you to repent. And I want to suggest to you that if it's really hard for you to repent, you are in danger of being asleep spiritually and you could die. But the ability to repent and to respond to God and to be sensitive and to say, do you know what? I was wrong there. What I said was wrong and I'm going to put that right. That ability is a sign of spiritual life. It means that you're awake. You're awake to the Spirit of God. And you know, when, when, when we sin and when we repent, if we can narrow the gap... Narrow the gap. We we are in danger of actually catching ourselves out and living such a life connected to God. Wouldn't that be awesome? Some of us, we do something wrong and it's years before we repent. But imagine if it was months or weeks or days or hours or even minutes. Imagine what that life would be like. Repent. And, And Jesus then reminds Sardis of the history. And he says, obey it and repent. If you do not wake up, I'm going to come like a thief. When does a thief come? In the night when you're asleep. That's what happened in your history. Do you remember Croesus and the helmet and the vultures? Do you remember that? That's what's going to happen to you guys if you do not wake up. And, and let me just say something else before we just pause and, and, and respond around, around this message. Something else is very interesting in Sardis. In Sardis, there's no Orthodox Jews, to give them a hard time. There's no false teachers like the Balaams and the Nicolaitans that we've looked at. There's no Jezebel spirit there. There's no persecution Everything is really nice, easy, and can I dare say, middle to upper class. Can I say, when you are in a condition like that, you are at your most vulnerable spiritually. That's the worst place for us to be spiritually. When there's no persecution, no difficulty, and everything is so easy and comfortable, that is the most dangerous place to be as a Christian. But when there's that agitation, and when there's that challenge, and when there's that threat, then it keeps us awake keeps us awake and he ends up the message by saying in verse 4 you have a few people inside us who have not soiled their clothes that's a reference to men chopping off bits of their bodies which you really don't want me to go into on a Sunday morning so we'll just leave that okay um, I, I, they, they, they will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy he who overcomes will like them be dressed in white I'll never blot out his name from the book of life but will acknowledge his name before my father he's saying listen there are some guys some amongst you you're not asleep you've not sold your clothes you're not asleep you're not like that you are awake and to you guys I'm going to give white to wear because white is a symbol of victory as well as purity and so he's saying to this church of Soddus you have a reputation but listen you've got to wake up if you do not wake up you are going to die individually and corporately and I love the sense in which he's saying to, I mean, I can, imagine, can you imagine what it would have been like to hear that message but I'll tell you what if it was me I was saying do you know what is that me that could be me God please wake me up see if there's anything in me that is asleep because I don't want it to be asleep because I want to be awake to you amen why don't we pray? Father, we thank you this morning that you're an awesome God. And Lord, you, you come to us through these ancient texts. And, and God, just such a way of, these texts are alive. That's because your word is alive, sharper than any two-edged sword. They're not, this is not history that we've looked at this morning. This is reality. This is eternity. This is now. This is here. This is us. And Lord, I pray that as we just respond to you, In these few moments now, before we look at the last, before we look at the next church we want to look at, Lord, I pray that in these moments, Lord, I pray that some of us will hear the alarm clock and we'll wake up. Some of us have hit the snooze button way too many times in our spiritual lives. Lord, I pray that you will resist that, but we will wake up. And God, if there's anything in us that needs to wake up, then Lord, I pray that we'd hear that alarm bell and we'd waken up, we'd strengthen what remains we'd remember what we've received and we'd live in that and Lord we'd repent and God if for some of us it's been a long time since we've repented then Lord help us because we might need to do that in order to stay alive to who you are and to what you're doing in our lives we're going to sing and um, this song that this quite a new song really and it may be that you want to just let this song wash over you and you want to let the words just hit you and that's fine but it's a song which, which encourages us to another place that we want to visit this morning before we finish, and this is a very short letter with a very short message, actually, um, w- w- which is unlike any of the other messages, and we're just going to look at the introduction in a moment, but just before I do that, just to say that, I do really believe that there are people here this morning, and you're going to need to hear the message that this church brings, that was brought to this church. You need to hear it, okay? I believe God wants to speak to you through. So here's just an introduction, and this is Philadelphia. This is Philadelphia. Philadelphia was a city situated on a broad plain in a fertile valley. It's in an area that's prone to earthquakes. In fact, in AD 17, an earthquake nearly destroyed the city. The name Philadelphia means brotherly love. And it comes from the founder, Philadelphus, who was loyal to his own brother. In fact, it's interesting that this place is like a gateway city to the region. And that Jesus uses that metaphor in his message to the church when he talks about an open door. This is a city that honoured its heroic sons by putting their names on pillars on the buildings all around the city. It's also a city that received Ignatius, that early church hero who visited Philadelphia on his way from Antioch to Rome where he was eventually martyred for his faith. This church is a church that's been shaken but stood firm. Philadelphia, you've got mail. Have you ever been in a time in your life and you've thought like this, when is this all going to stop? Anyone ever been there? Or when is this going to change? Or when is this going to be over? Or when am I going to stop feeling like this? Does anyone know what I'm talking about or is it just me? Well, the people of Philadelphia lived their whole lives with those kind of questions. Because Philadelphia was was in this fertile valley, it was on a plain, and the problem was it was also on a geological fault line, which means that there were earthquakes that would happen at any time. And obviously there are people in our world right now that live in places like this, and you can't imagine, can you, what it's like to live like that. You must live with almost a constant sense of anxiety and a constant sense of helplessness and at times hopelessness. Because you think, at any moment, something's going to happen and it will totally be out of my control. There's nothing that I will be able to do. It'll just happen and my whole life will change and there's nothing that I can do at all. And that was how Philadelphians lived, because of where they were situated. This letter is unlike any of the other seven letters, because there are no words of rebuke here. To a people who live in anxiety, to a people who live in a sense of hopelessness and helplessness and out of control, Jesus doesn't bring any words of rebuke. He just brings a massive encouragement. And I believe as I've been preparing for this that there are some of you here and you live in Philadelphia. In your life right now, you live in Philadelphia where things are happening around you and you feel totally out of control. You feel totally helpless and at times you feel hopeless. And I believe that God has a word of encouragement for you this morning. And you see, the word that comes to them and that comes to us, we've got mail this morning, is be hopeful. That in the environment you live in, which feels hopeless because it's outside your control, you can be hopeful today. And the clue to how you can be hopeful is found in the text. I'm going to read it to you and I want you to tell me or listen whether you can see the word that repeats which is the key to living in hope. It says this, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens no one can shut and what he shuts no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength. Yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you've kept my commands to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What's the word that repeats? I, all the way through that. It's just I, I, I. And I want to tell you, the reason that you can be hopeful today is nothing at all to do with you. And you might think, I can't be hopeful because of my circumstances, because of my situation, because I'm powerless, because I can't control it, because I don't know how to get out of it, because I don't know when it will change. You will never be hopeful if you live in that. You will only be hopeful when you look to the one who says, I am he. I am the one, he says, who holds the keys. That's an awesome thing, isn't it? Yesterday when we were taking Josh there, there was nothing we could do until we got the keys to his, his apartment and the keys to his hall of residence. And uh, you, there's nothing we could do. But when we got the keys, we could get into the doors and we got into the rooms. And then when we got into the rooms, I said to him, this reminds me of the sitcom that you probably might have heard of called Porridge. Anyone know what I'm talking about? In fact, I said to him, I wonder if they'll let you, I wonder when lockdown is. Or whether they'll let you out for some exercise once a week. But but there's nothing we could do until we got the keys. But when you have the keys, the empowerment is amazing. And Jesus says, I am the one who holds the keys. And you might say today, you don't know how locked up my situation is. Well, I don't know how locked it up, but he's got the keys. He's got the keys. And I want to just go through nine things in five minutes of what Jesus says, all all, that are all about I. He says, I hold the keys. You might think this door will never open, but you don't know, he's got the keys. And if he's got the keys, that gives you hope. Because if you've got the keys, you'd have opened it up, and you haven't, but he has. I have the keys. And then he says, I know your deeds. You've kept my word and have not denied my name. You've kept my command to endure patiently. Isn't that great? You see, nobody else might know your deeds, but I know your deeds. And I know who you are. And I know how faithful you've been. I know how loyal you've been. That's reason, to be hopeful. And then in verse 8, I have placed before you an open door. You know, there's so many Christians, and we spend our life trying to find God's will, rather than trying to follow God's voice. Because they're different. Because I wonder how many times we come to an open door And we're not sure, should I walk through it, shouldn't I walk through it? Is it God? Isn't it God? And God says, for goodness sake, it's an open door. If you're following my voice, just go. If I say go, just go. And God sets before He says, I have placed before you an open door. And you might think, I I, I haven't got hope right now because there's no open doors. But God is the God who places open doors. And I'm praying and we're praying that for some of you who need that open door, that God's going to put it in front of you. Some of you, you may need that in your work situation or in some other situation. God is the God who places open doors. And then I love this phrase in verse 8. This is awesome. He says, he said, I mean, I don't know I've ever seen it like this. I know that you have little strength. If I said to you this morning, how many of you sitting here are saying today I have big strength? Well, not how many of you would say yes. But if I said to you, how many of you today feel that you have little strength? See, hands going up already. And it's a little bit like, he says, you feel hopeless because you have little strength, but you can be hopeful today because I know you have little strength and that doesn't disqualify you. Actually, it qualifies you. Because my word says that my power is made perfect in your weakness. So you have little strength. (laughs) That's fine. Because I'm great, God says, at making power perfect in your weakness. I know you have little strength. Then, then, I love this in verse 9. This, this is fantastic as well. He says, And I'm, I will make those who are the synagogue of Satan, in other words, they're liars, I'll make them come and fall down at your feet. Have you ever been in a situation when other people have spoken ill of you and it's not been true? Anyone? Probably just me. <laughs> that happens a lot. But the freedom and the hope that comes when you know that you don't have to do a thing, God will do it. The Bible says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. And the freedom and the hope that comes when you say, do you know what, I don't have to try and, 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 and make everybody believe my side. I don't have to go around. I can just let that go because God will do it. It's amazing. That will bring hope. I will cause these guys to come and bow down to you. I'll do it, you don't have to do it. And then he tags in this beautiful little phrase and he says, he says, I'll make those of the synagogue liars, I'll make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Isn't that interesting? They're not going to acknowledge that you have loved me, they're going to acknowledge that I have loved you. So if that doesn't cause you hope, God says, I have loved you. Our hope is not rooted in the fact that we love God, it's rooted in the fact that God loves us. And you see, that's why it says in the book of Romans, that Christ died for us, not while we were great, but while we were sinners. He did it first. He took the initiative first. That's why we can be hopeful today. Not because we love God, but because God loves us. I have loved you. I am coming soon. That's not a threat, that's a promise. And then he said, I will make you a pillar. In ancient Philadelphia, the heroes of the city, their names were written on the pillars. And it's like God saying... And I've got my heroes in this city as well and it's you guys. And I'm looking around near this church and there are some heroes in this place as well who've been faithful and you can be hopeful today because God has your names written on his pillars as well. And then it finishes up by this, this whole idea of writing a new name, you know, a new name in a city and I don't want to get into that too much but just this image in your mind. If you've ever been to a restaurant or, or a, a do somewhere where there's a guest list And have you ever approached it quite tentatively thinking, I am invited, I really hope I'm on the list. Have you ever done that? Because it can be quite embarrassing getting there all dressed up and you're not on the list. But you need not worry about that. Because God has a list as well. And if you know him today, your name is on the list. Isn't that amazing? So we can be hopeful this morning because we've got that new name and we've got that name written on his list. And and with all of this that comes piling through this word, the only thing he says to them is in verse 11. I am coming to Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. He's saying some of you in Philadelphia, you live in a place of anxiety. You live in powerlessness. You live where you feel out of control. Just hold on because I'm coming. Just hold on. Don't lose the crown that you've already received. It's tragic When so many believers lose what they've received just because they couldn't hold on. And he says, you hold on because I'm coming. I'm the one who holds the keys. I'm the one who knows your deeds. I'm the one who's placed before you an open door. I know you have little strength and I can sort that. I'm going to make those bow down to you. I have loved you. I'm coming soon. I'm going to make you a pillar and I will write on you a new name. You're on the guest list. All you have to do is hold on. Isn't that amazing? And I want to say to you this morning, If you are in Philadelphia, and you know what I mean by that, figuratively, if you're in Philadelphia and you feel out of control and you feel hopeless, I want you to relax. Your hope is not in you anyway, it's in Him. And so this morning, I want to say, hold on, hold on to what you have. He is your God, He has the keys, and He's coming. Why don't we pray? Let's just close our eyes for a moment. The band can come back up. I just want to give you an opportunity this morning just sensed in my spirit when I was preparing this that there were many of us that, that really need to hear this today that, that our hope is not in us it's not in our circumstances not in our situations it's in our God and you need hope right now in your life I want to ask you just to stand up just for a moment and I want to pray for you today if you need hope and you need this message you need this right now, then you just stand and respond to God. Standing is an act of response, it's a movement. Jesus. If you sat down and someone's standing, would you just reach out a hand, put it on the shoulder, don't say anything, I'll pray, but just so they know that they're not alone. Philadelphia was was known for its brotherly love, for its Loyalty for its commitment to one another. And it was in that sense of body, it was in that sense of family, it was in that sense of friendship that they were strengthened while they were in that difficult place. So Father, we want to pray for our brothers and sisters who are standing right now, who are in need of hope. And Lord, we pray that by your Spirit you'd strengthen them, that they would hold on to what they've received. They would hold on to the crown that they have that God, that you'd strengthen them on the inside. Lord, some of them are passing through a season of life and they just need hope in that. Some of them are are facing a locked door which doesn't seem to be moving. Lord, I want to pray in Jesus' name, you are the God who holds the keys. Lord, would you find that key? Would you get that key? Would you open that locked door in Jesus' name? Lord, some of them are just desperately crying out for for an open door that they can walk through. Lord, I pray that you'd show them that that you'd speak to them, that you'd encourage them to step through that open door. Father, for any of them that are just crying out for hope, Lord, would they know that their hope is not in them, but their hope is in you. Our hope is in you. Our life is in you. Our future is in you. And Lord, we just recommit ourselves to that again today. Father, help us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Why don't we all stand together? as a body, and we're going to declare some truth this morning as we sing this song that we know well.